just going to turn just now to Job chapter 1, and we'll begin reading from verse 1. So that's Job chapter 1, and reading from verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pair of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had the largest number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their house, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning he would offer a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and surely he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, When Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, 
Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out his hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Let's just come and pray. Father, as we read a passage like this, we're very much aware of the challenges it brings. But Lord, the challenges it brings are the challenges that are reflected again and again and day by day in life. There are challenges that we've all had to wrestle with personally. So we ask now that as we come before your word, that you will bring from it truth that will help us to live our lives as Job did, to live lives of integrity, no matter what life might bring, to live lives of true faithfulness to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've already said that tonight I plan to begin a, a series with you in Job. Now, your response to this might be, as people have responded in the past when I've suggested this, why Job? Why would you want ever to preach on Job? So that thought was there bubbling away in the back of my mind. And then as part of my preparation, I started to read Charles Swindoll's book, on Job Swindoll, who for many years was and is considered to be one of the best preachers in the United States, a wonderfully effective and engaging preacher. Well, this is what he shares uh, in his introduction to this book uh, about his experience with his church when he preached this. He says, they were the ones who first heard the results of my work in the text of Job during most of the Sunday mornings throughout the year 2002. They exemplified great patience as we kept returning to the numerous and sometimes tedious chapters of the book of Job week after week. I'm not saying that they began to weary under the load, but I can testify 
that when the day arrived when I was able to announce we are coming to an end of our study of Job, the place exploded with spontaneous, loud applause. Well, that encouraged me. That kind of set me up. But let me just at this point maybe try and, and calm your fears. I'm not going to try and do a swindle and preach through this book chapter by chapter, passage by passage. For one thing, I don't have either his intellect or his ability. And also, I actually don't think it's necessary. For there is repetition in Job that is appropriate, very much so, in its context and is there to drive home his message but for us, it is possible, and I think it is helpful, for us to pick out, to draw out the key themes of Job and to focus on them. But let me tell you why I've made the choice to preach on Job. First of all, because of the number of people who, in response to the sermon I preached last Sunday on overcoming hardship, well, as they shared with me, that made it clear to me that there are a number of people in this fellowship who are passing through difficult times in their life right now. And you need to hear a word from the Lord that speaks right into your situation. And I believe we find that word in Job. Secondly, I'm preaching on this now because I think this addresses the, the big question that people today are asking and probably have for a long time regarding faith. Because reading around again for tonight, I discovered that not that long ago, a Christian research group conducted a survey in which a scientifically selected cross-section of adults were asked the question, if you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? The top response by far was why is there pain and suffering in the world? So you see, if we want to, to share our faith in this world that we live in, then people will want to know how we square what we say we believe in with the suffering and the evil that more and more seems to be running rampant in our world. But you know, maybe for some here tonight, this question isn't an academic exercise. Rather, it is your big question. Because this is the stumbling block that stops you coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, tonight I cannot promise to give you the final definitive answer to the question of pain and suffering. That is in terms of why particular incidents happen, why particular people suffer. In fact, as we'll see, that's the the big mistake Job's friends made, trying to have an understanding of suffering that would give them a kind of grid that they would be able to filter through every situation and every individual. And that's just not the way it works. Life is far too complex to be understood by finite men and women in that kind of way. But I will tonight say this to you that there is no piece of literature of any kind anywhere that has got more to say about pain and suffering than the book of Job. Martin Luther, he summed up Job in two words. Magnificent, sublime. Victor Hugo, the French poet and author, he concluded that Job is perhaps 
the greatest masterpiece of the human mind. Having said that, the way I'm going to handle this first look at Job tonight is I'm going to look with you first at some principles, some principles that we find not just here in Job but elsewhere in the Bible that give us some kind of insight at least into what's going on when people suffer. And then I want to look with you at some personalities, at some of the the personalities that feature so prominently in these first chapters of Job. We'll begin, though, with some principles. And where I believe this has to be grounded is in sin. You see, it's the fact that man sins. It's the fact that man chooses to rebel against God. It's this that through our world, created by God, good, perfect, it's this that through this world, off balance, and introduced evil and then pain and suffering and death as an ongoing impact of this into our experience. As Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as Romans 6.23 adds, the wages of sin is death. Now, some have argued, why then didn't God just make this a world where it was impossible for mankind to sin? Why didn't he sort of program us in such a way as to make sin an impossibility? But you see, for God to have done that, he would have had to have created a world without true freedom. And you see, without true freedom, we could not be said to freely choose to love because love is about real and free choice. So then for God to have created a world without the possibility of sin would have meant he would also have had to have created a world without the possibility of real love. And that, you see, God cannot do. Because that is inconsistent with his fundamental character. And though God is all-powerful, that doesn't mean that God can do anything. Now, what that means is that God can do anything that is consistent with who he is. For example, God can't do things that are evil. God can't do things that are inconsistent. God can do things that are meaningless. So the pain pain and suffering in this world then is in a general sense all rooted in mankind's sin. All rooted in our choice to sin. And the so-called natural disasters that we seem to see more and more of today. I believe these are part of the necessary adjustments that are needed to keep a, a creation that's been thrown off balance by man's sin, to keep that creation in check. I believe that's something at least of, of what Paul's touching on in, in Romans 8.22 where, where he says there, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And science, I believe, at least seems to, to back this up. For instance, Peter Williams has got a great book on, on apologetics, on the defense of Christian faith. He tells us that modern physics shows us how the cost of suffering 
caused by natural disasters is necessary for the gain of our existence. For the basic constants of nature are so interconnected that even small changes in a single law would have a cataclysmic knock-on effect. But you know, Job himself, he is the example of some of the big principles of the Bible, some of the big principles of life taken to their limit. For instance, the Bible clearly teaches that living a godly life often, not always, but often, brings material blessings. For example, Proverbs 3, 1 and 2, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life for many years and bring you prosperity. But you see, elsewhere in the Bible, the complaint is that it's actually the godless who seem to prosper in this life. While the godly look on with confusion until they remember that they have what really matters in the Lord. It's all there, Psalm 73. starts verse 3 where it says, the psalmist, it says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then though, verse 27 and 28, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now you see, in Job, we see all of this, but magnified to its ultimate. The blessings of godliness, but then the seeming injustices that are part of life in this world. And what I believe this, this underlines for us is that there are no easy answers for us as finite, limited human beings in terms of either what we experience in life or in terms of what we see others experience in life. We can talk, as I have, in general terms about things like human freedom and and the impact of sin. And we can talk in general terms, as we will a little bit later on, about the spiritual warfare that's continually going on and, and that we're all caught up in and all affected by. But why particular people suffer as they do? Why particular things happen in particular places? We can't take that in. We haven't got the resources to take it in or to explain it away. And let me make it clear to you right now, because I don't want to mislead you. The book of Job, studying the book of Job, will not give you the final answer as to why we suffer, as to why we or those close to us experience what we do in life. Rather, as a study guide in Job that I've found especially helpful, as it, as it says, it says, Job doesn't give us an exhaustive catalogue of reasons as to why suffering happens. It's more concerned to explain how to act towards God when suffering happens. Have you got that? This is the key 
to understanding the book of Job and getting the maximum benefit from this book. Job's main concern is how we should respond when we suffer. Very briefly, these are some principles, some principles that I believe are, are to be found there in the Bible and particularly in the book of Job that relate in some way to our human experience of pain and suffering. Now let's move on now to look at some personalities, at the different personalities that were introduced to in these early chapters of Job. And first of all, of course, there is Job himself. A man who we're told in verse 1 was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now that word blameless doesn't mean and isn't implying, I want to be clear, that Job was perfect. Now what it actually means is that Job was a man of true faith and real integrity. That Job was a man who loved God, who sought to live his life in submission to God, and who then sought to ensure that in every area of his life and in all his relationships, that the way he lived, his conduct, reflected this. And the little touch in verse 4 and 5 that after his children had had a feast, a get-together in one or other of their homes, that then Job used to sacrifice, he used to come before God on their behalf. I think this gives us a, a beautiful little insight into just the sheer godliness of this man. You see, these are feasts that are about giving thanks to God for his goodness. That's what these feasts were about. And there's no indication that these feasts degenerated in any way into some kind of drunken rabble or anything like that. But you see, Job, he is so spiritually sensitive that just in case, just maybe, that any of his children have said something or thought something or done something that was offensive to God, he went and sacrificed to make sure that everything was right. But not only was Job spiritually and morally beyond reproach, he was also incredibly wealthy. And in the conversation later between the Lord and Satan, it's made clear there that this is a, a direct result of God's blessing. It says, verse 10, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. Though an interesting point is, is made here by Francis Anderson because what he says is that the word hedge as well as a protective barrier could also imply that Job had been hemmed in to a very limited experience of life. That this was one of the byproducts of God protecting Job from the full effects of living in a sinful world and that perhaps impacted his life in the sense that Job hadn't really been stretched as a person. They hadn't been used in the way he might have. That the full benefits of his godly character had maybe, maybe, because of that spiritual protection, not been fully realised. But, you know, God had blessed him. How he had blessed him. Experts tell us that his 3,000 camels would have enabled him to run a trucking business right throughout that region for the caravans that ran east to west. His 7,000 sheep would have provided enough wool to clothe many towns and villages. 
His 1,000 oxen paired together would enable him to cultivate enough land to feed the entire region. And his 500 donkeys, well, you know, at that time, donkey milk was the drinkable delicacy of the time. It's hard to understand, I know, but, you know, some people today, I'm told, do actually like Dr. Pepper's. But put it all together, though. Put all of this together. And Job was basically, I don't know, he was the, the Mike Ashley and every other Philip Green, any other kind of rich guy you want. He was them all combined in one. And even the numbers of his children that were told, seven sons and three daughters, even they are an indication of the blessing of God because both these numbers in the Bible symbolize completeness. It's saying that Job had the perfect family. And then suddenly, one day, everything was taken away from him. And there is a kind of poetry about, about the way this is recorded in Job. The violence of men alternates with the violence of nature, and on it goes. And remember, Job is always unaware that this is a test resulting from a conversation between the Lord and Satan. As one writer here puts it, the hand of God is concealed. The hand of Satan is unsuspected. At one point, at the surface level, this is just life. That's all Job knows. But the end result of it is that Job is less left with nothing. But as Job fails to crumble under this, even this is not enough for Satan. Chapter 2, verse 4. Skin for skin, he asks. Implying, as he says this, that all Job really cared about was his own life. And that he hadn't really been hurt by all these dreadful calamities because all Job actually cared about was himself. So the end result is Job is struck down with some dreadful skin disease. And he's sitting, we're told, among the ashes. Basically, that would be the city rubbish dump. Scraping and scratching himself with a piece of broken pottery. And Warren Wearsby, he sums up this scene for us like this. There the city garbage was deposited and burned. And there the city's rejects lived, begging alms from whoever passed by. At the ash heaps, dogs fought over something to eat, and the city's dung was brought and burned. The city's leading citizen was now living in abject poverty and shame. And all that he had humanly left were his wife and three friends. And even they turned against him. But remember what we said earlier? Remember what we said? That what Job teaches is not so much why we suffer, but how we should respond when we suffer. Well, how did Job respond here? And what does this tell us? What does this reveal to us about him? Well, let me first say that if you are looking from Job for an example of the teaching that true faith should enable you to sail untroubled through life's tragedies, if that's what you're looking for, you just won't find it. 
And that kind of teaching, I believe, is a distortion of biblical teaching that's led far too many Christians to try to live a lie that's led to inner torment and too frequently to some kind of breakdown. So no, let's be very clear here. Job felt deeply what had happened to him. He felt it. It mattered. His reaction to his first series of tragedies just demonstrates this so very powerfully. First, he, he tore his robe with this in the Old Testament being a symbol of grief, that the action of a man or a woman in total anguish and pain. And then he shaved his head. And again, in the Old Testament, the hair is seen as an expression of an individual's glory, of someone's worth. And here Job is saying that now he's worthless. And then finally, he fell to the ground. But here this time, this isn't about grief. Because we're told here, this is about worship. And what it literally says is that here Job prostrated himself as a declaration of his submission to God, his worship of God. And then there come the wonderful words of verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now you see, in this context, these are not fatalistic words. These aren't some kind of depressed, resigned acceptance of what life has brought his way. No, these words are a declaration of faith that reveal the true reality of Job's heart and that reveal that Satan was so very wrong when he said that Job worshipped God only because of what God gave him. Rather, these words, as they prove, is that while Job had accepted what he had gratefully as a gift from God's hand, Yet that deep in Job's heart, there lay a knowledge of God and a knowledge of God's love for him that enabled him to keep on loving and serving God no matter what life brought his way. And his response to, to the next tragedy that struck him, the, the loss of his health, is, I think, equally wonderful. For as his wife challenges him in verse 9 of chapter 2. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Well, see, Job quickly rebukes her. He calls her a foolish woman, which means, interestingly, not wicked, but a woman who's lacking in discernment. And then he adds to that. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Putting it all together. What's Job saying? He's saying, I don't know why this has happened. I don't understand it. I can't grasp it. But still I know God. I know his love. I know his power. And I will trust him. What a response. What an example. What a man of faith. But I said I would introduce you to some personalities, and the next one, I'm afraid, is not so inspiring. It's Job's wife. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time 
looking at her, but let me just couch what I'm going to say with a plea, and that is, let's temper any judgment of her with an acknowledgement of what this woman has been through. She just lost not one, but ten children. Think of that. She just lost her position in society, no longer the wife of the town's number one citizen. She just lost all her wealth and possessions and was now reduced to a life of abject poverty. And to all intents and purposes, she's lost the companionship of the man who'd been her partner through life. It would take a unique person to be able to stand under that. So let's not judge Job's wife too harshly because she was not that kind of person. However, at the same time, let's not lose sight of the sheer ugliness of both her words and the underlying sentiment. And let's resolve never ever to follow in her footsteps. Never to encourage a believer to let go of their integrity, to give up on their faith. But you know, it's not just human personalities who are involved here. There are also supernatural powers at work. First, Satan. Satan, who's found present at the Lord's assembly when the angels gather before him. Now this can maybe seem a little bit confusing, that Satan here seems to be some kind of trusted confidant of the Lord, that there maybe seems to be, as we look at it on the surface level, some kind of collaboration in heaven between the powers of the Lord and the powers of evil. Actually, this is not the case. Rather, the word that's translated uh, here, that Satan also came with them, that carries within it that word, the thought of an intruder, that he came as an intruder. And, and notice when you see that, that, that Satan alone here is questioned by God. No one else is questioned. That's because he had no right to be there. But we'll talk a lot about Satan in these verses, about his intellect as he's able to speak with God. That he has emotions because he's antagonistic towards Job. That he has power, real power, on this earth. That sin opened up the floodgates to Satan's power. And that power continues until it peaks, until its ugliness is finally exposed when Christ returns in his glory. But you know, though Satan's power is real on this earth, it is also limited. It is as nothing in comparison to the sovereign power of God. And Satan's purpose, well, that's brought right out into the open here in chapter 2, verse 3. It's ruin. Satan wanted to ruin Job. And he wants to ruin us. He wants to ruin our faith and all that relates to that. He wants to do that because he knows God loves us and he hates everything that God loves. He stands against all and every individual God's love. The very word, the very name Satan means that he is the adversary. He is the one who stands against us. He's the one who wants to destroy us. But he cannot destroy us. 
Not if we, like Job, learn to turn to God. Because God we see revealed here in these verses, in this chapter, our God is a God of sovereign power. A God who sometimes holds back his power, who allows Satan his way to a degree, but brings it into that sovereign power and uses it to bless us, to help us to grow in Jesus. And God's love is always there and always with his people. God is never separated from his people. He loves us and he will never let us go. You know, the final thing is that God doesn't just speak to us about suffering. No, God also stands with us in our suffering. In Jesus, God knows what it's like to be an innocent victim of suffering. In fact, again, Francis Anderson, he says, in, in light of the cross, that of all human beings, the innocent sufferer stands nearest to God. As we suffer for no fault of our own, we stand close to God and God draws near to us. And I would say, oh, that we might at that point turn to him, that we might receive the love he longs to pour upon us. But let me just here give John Stott the final word. And this is what John Stott once wrote. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed. A remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn picks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us, and our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. You see, this is our God, the God who stands with us in our suffering, the God who endured suffering far beyond any we will ever face, the God who wants us to turn to him in our suffering that he might meet with us, that he might comfort us, that he might strengthen us, that he might carry us through. Let's just come to him now in prayer. Father, we want to give thanks to you that we don't find all the answers to why 
people suffer, why we suffer the things we do, why some people seem to suffer so much. We don't have all the answers to that. But Lord, we know how you want us to respond. You know where you want us, we know where you want us to turn. And we know that as we turn to you, we don't look upon some impassive, implacable God. But we look upon a God who has suffered more than we can imagine. A God who knows the pain that we endure. And a God whose heart is filled with love and compassion toward us. Oh, Father, help us. If we are suffering tonight, to turn to you right now in our need. That you might meet with us, comfort us and bless us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.